Good afternoon, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I am not Manish Rath. I am Javane Nakumaram. Manish cannot be here today with us because he's testifying before Congress on an OSHA bill this afternoon. I think this is the first time since the start of the OSHA 3030, which uh, this has been going on for about seven years, that Manish cannot be here for the program. So Larry Halpern and I will be covering today in his absence. So thank you to everyone for joining us for today's program where we'll be uh, discussing the recently published Frequently Asked Questions uh, from, OSHA, uh, from OSHA on the Silica Rule for General Industry. You may recall that a few months ago we did an OSHA 3030 on OSHA Silica FAQs for the construction industry. So we wanted to reiterate that these FAQs are different because they are specifically for the general industry. So for those of you who have not dialed into the audio portion, here's the dial-in information on the screen and the access code so that you can listen along. So let me start by introducing Larry Halperin. Many of you already know Larry because he's participated in many of the previous OSHA 3030s. Larry's a partner at Keller and & Heckman and one of the leading experts in the country on OSHA law. So Larry, thank you very much for presenting with me today. Thank you, Javanan. It's a pleasure to be here. And as I said, I'm Javane Nakumaram. I'm an associate at Keller and Heckman in the OSHA practice group, and I've participated in OSHA 3030s with Monash over the past couple of years. Uh, as many of you know, we have a library of all of our previous OSHA 3030s, so you can access them on your computer at www.khlaw.com OSHA 3030. You can also access our 3030s as a podcast if you want to catch us on the go. So you can find uh, the podcast on any of your favorite services like Apple Podcasts or iTunes. So with that, let's get to our topic, which is OSHA's new silica FAQs for general industry. So OSHA published 64 FAQs uh, back in January. So we will not be covering all of them since that would probably take longer than 30 minutes, but we're going to hit the highlights. So we'll start by giving some background on OSHA's silica standard uh, for general industry. Uh, we'll also briefly discuss one of the aspects of the silica rule that's uh, may it, it's caused some confusion for employers, which is how to determine if uh, they fall under general industry or construction industry, since there are two standards. Um, the general industry standard specifically exempts construction work, so we'll help clarify how to determine if something is construction work or not. Uh, we'll also review some of the recent issues facing employers in general industry about uh, the standard based on enforcement trends. We'll also review uh, some of the key FAQs for a general industry that OSHA just published. And as always, we'll discuss what employers should do. Um, now just to briefly give some background, back in 2016, OSHA promulgated uh, the silica rule. Um, OSHA determined that occupational exposures to respirable crystalline silica at the previous PEL resulted in a significant risk of developing silicosis and other non-malignant respiratory disease, lung cancer, and kidney disease. So therefore, OSHA lowered the permissible exposure limit to 50 micrograms per cubic meter of air as an eight-hour time-weighted average and set the action level at 25 micrograms per cubic meter of air. Uh, the standard includes uh, many different provisions to protect employees, such as uh, exposure assessments, methods for controlling exposure, respiratory protection, medical surveillance, hazard communication, and record keeping. Also, based on the D.C. Circuit silica decision last year, 
OSHA is, uh, they're going to consider whether to include medical removal in the standard, but that's yet to be determined. Uh, so here is the compliance schedule for the silica rule. Um, the uh, majority of the requirements went into effect in June of 2018. Uh, however, the, uh, the requirement that employers offer medical exams to employees exposed at or above the action level for 30 or more days a year, that requirement doesn't kick in until 2020. Uh, I'll note that the construction industry standard went into effect in September of 2017. So now both standards are in effect and OSHA has been enforcing both standards. I think one thing to point out is that standard was adopted in March of 2016, mm -hmm. and industry was given over two years right. to put this rule into place. One thing we can mind just briefly point out is we kind of slipped one of the, the questions in there, but in addition to the pill being, let's say, 50 micrograms per cubic meter, if you have a an estimated sampling analytical error of 10%, then basically if OSHA finds a, let's say, 55 micrograms, that's still being considered in compliance. Right. That's, a, that's an important point to clarify. Thank you. So uh, I think we, we wanted to include just a brief discussion on what the difference between general industry and construction work is. And this is important because we have different silica standards for both industries, and companies may not be sure if a particular task uh, constitutes construction work or if it's more like a maintenance activity, which would fall under general industry. So the silica rule for general industry, it does not apply to construction work. Uh, and construction work is uh, defined as work for construction, alteration, and or repair, including painting and decorating. And that's, uh, that's in the OSHA regulations. So these silica FAQs, they don't specifically address construction work, but OSHA has many times in the past with different letters of interpretation. Uh, but basically, OSHA has stated that, generally speaking, uh, when you're talking about reconfiguring space or uh, installation of substantially new equipment, that's a generally considered construction, whereas refurbishing uh, existing equipment or space, that's considered maintenance. OSHA has given the example of uh, replacing one utility pole with a new identical pole as being maintenance, but if it were replaced uh, with an improved pole or equipment, then that would be considered construction. So that's one of the examples they've given in guidance. So there are a number of other factors OSHA considers, uh, and that could probably take up an entire OSHA 3030. So we won't get too much into it, but we thought it was important to uh, just highlight how OSHA views the difference. So let, let's interject so we're clear. With respect to general industry, there's really two, two or three categories of coverage. There's the processing operations where you actually use crystalline silica or generate some crystalline silica uh, as a function of the process in manufacturing a product that's going <coughs> to be shipped someplace else. And then at the manufacturing site, you have the potential for engaging in maintenance or construction activities on the site. And you have to figure out, depending on the activity, where it falls one way or the other. So as OSHA gave the example, if you have an electric cable line that's already in a building and you decide to move it and drill a hole through a wall to move it, that's maintenance. If the cable wasn't there in the first place and you're installing yeah, a new one, then right. it becomes construction. Mm -hmm. 
Right. I think that, um, again, it's it can be tricky when you have a work site with a lot of different operations and tasks going on. So it is helpful to learn how you can determine the difference and therefore which standard uh, you would have to comply with. But also something unique about the general industry standard is that even if you fall under general industry, you can still follow the controls uh, excuse me, established in table one of the construction industry rule if the task is indistinguishable from a construction task in table one, if the task is not performed regularly in the same environment and conditions, and uh, if you comply with the construction industry standards requirements. So so this can be useful for employers because um, the construction industry standard, uh, if you comply with table one, then you do not have to fulfill the exposure assessment requirements. So uh, we wanted to highlight some of the enforcement trends that we've seen so far from OSHA on the silica rule since the standards went into effect, because some of these um, enforcement, uh, some of these alleged violations give an indication about what employers uh, could be struggling with in terms of understanding the rules requirements. So uh, we learned uh, based on trade press articles that Uh, OSHA has cited 42 alleged violations uh, of the general industry standard and 117 alleged violations of the construction industry standard. And that's uh, the construction industry standard has been in effect about nine months longer than the general industry standard. Uh, So of these violations, a majority of them uh, in both industries were for failures to comply with the exposure assessments uh, requirements. So that's sort of the threshold Uh, requirement there. And other citations include failures to have uh, a written exposure control plan and specifically for the construction industry, failures to uh, alleged failures to comply with table one controls. So there's one interesting thing that comes out of this. We talked about it before is for some of these requirements, OSHA has a burden of establishing that you're over the pill, for example. In others, it's simply if they can establish there's any silica exposure at all and you don't have the documentation to show that you're under the 25 micrograms, the standard applies and therefore they could have probably cited some of these other employers for various housekeeping and other violations, Mm -hmm. which they apparently didn't do, which suggests at least they're using a little discretion in how they're enforcing this standard so far. Right, so the citation is just for the, the, the failure to demonstrate that you're exempt or failure to do exposure monitor exposure monitoring and assessments rather than every aspect of the standard. Um, also, the enforcement data shows that most of the inspections leading to silica citations were based on employee complaints. And so OSHA is continuing to enforce uh, both standards. So these FAQs, um, it's important for employers to review them, not only these FAQs, but also the construction FAQs that came out a few months ago to help with compliance as OSHA continues to enforce this. So now we're going to dive into some of the uh, interesting FAQs that we uh, that we reviewed. So the first few we thought were particularly relevant because, again, a lot of the enforcement we've seen from OSHA has been uh, for the basic you know, exposure assessment requirement. And so uh, perhaps employers... Uh, are struggling to determine if they are exempt from the standard, if they fall within the scope of the standard, and what they need to demonstrate in order to um, show that they're exempt. So the first three FAQs generally have to do with scope and application. 
so as you know, uh, this, uh, the standard for general industry does not apply if the employer has objective data demonstrating that the employee exposure to silica will remain below the action level under any foreseeable conditions. So the FAQs, they, they demonstrate or they try to help explain um, uh, what foreseeable conditions mean. So uh, OSHA has said that uh, failure, the failure of engineering controls is a foreseeable condition. And so uh, the exception or the exemption usually applies only where exposures below the action level are expected to be achieved without the use of controls. However, uh, the guidance also says uh, the failure of some types of controls is not possible or so improbable that it's actually not foreseeable. And therefore, employers don't need to account for that, uh, that failure of such controls when determining if their employee exposures will remain below the action level under foreseeable conditions. So, and, for example, right, yeah. you got a process it's processing some materials, including the crystalline silica. If you have local exhaust ventilation, you have to assume it's going to fail. Uh, you know, you can get into a discussion with OSHA about, well, when the ventilation fails, we've got some sensing device that shuts the process down, but it seems that they would apparently assume that it, everything's going to fail. Now, it could end up with a litigated case on that issue, but OSHA's apparent position is if you have a wall in a building that isolates one area from another, that's mm -hmm. going to be considered reliable. But if you have something like an enclosed conveyor, they give an example, mm -hmm. they assume that somehow the containment is not going to always be intact, and therefore you have to assume a loss of containment. Um, I don't know how that's going to work with a vessel. It seems like there's a lot of unknown areas mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is the burden is on the employer because it's an exception. So if you don't establish that you're down below the 25, you're going to be presumed to, to be above it until you've shown you have below mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, just so we mention it, you could determine there's no occupational exposure to silica at all. Uh, you'll be in a gray area there. If it's an office building that doesn't get too involved in maintenance and construction work, that's probably going to work some of the time. But if you've got a factory, considering the maintenance and and construction types of activities that go on there, you'll never be outside the scope of this standard, even if right. you don't process crystalline silica in, in any part of your production activity. Right. It might be hard to know if you have absolutely no exposure to crystalline silica. And so that uh, one of OSHA's FAQs uh, sort of addresses this issue by saying that um, employers who have some silica exposure and can uh, and can and, and they want to demonstrate that they're exempt from the standard based on objective data um, uh, that employee exposure remains below the action level, then they do need to document this determination. They have to show they have to document this objective data. But if you have no silica exposure at all in your facility, you don't have to document that determination. And so. Um, if if you if you say that you have no silica exposure and you're not going to document this determination, that you have to make sure that is the case. Because if you do have some exposure, then that determination does have to be documented. There's also the gray area because in the questions, OSHA was asked, are there any established exemptions? And they said the fact that something only happens 15 minutes a day mm -hmm. doesn't qualify. 
They seem to suggest that you should test for everything or find some objective data somewhere that supports the conclusion that a test <coughs> doesn't require coverage. But if you look in the Small Business Construction Guidance document, it specifically identifies some tasks which it says generally would not be over and then seems to say the standard doesn't apply. So there's a little bit of a confusion as to the guidance that the agency has provided in this area. It appears that there are a few tasks they've identified as, as likely not to be covered, but they haven't given a lot of guidance and did point out that you have to be at 800 micrograms on average for 15 minutes to be over the, mm -hmm. the limit. So in any right, event, right. So while it may not be likely that you would exceed the action level, you still need to be able to demonstrate that. You still have to have the data showing that exposure won't exceed. There's going to be a lot of discretion level. by compliance officers mm -hmm. in, in terms of whether they are expecting an analysis of every particular area. We'll see how it works right. out in practice. Right. Well, so uh, continuing with the exposure assessment guidance, uh, the silica standard requires that employers assess the exposure of each employee who is or may reasonably be expected to be exposed uh, to silica at or above the action level uh, using either the performance option or the scheduled monitoring option. So the performance option involves assessing exposures for each employee based on air monitoring data or objective data whereas the uh, scheduled monitoring option requires conducting initial monitoring to assess employee exposures for employees on each shift, job classification, and work area. So, so the important right. thing to point out is the scheduled monitoring is a narrow way of achieving what information is required. If you do the scheduled monitoring, you basically have to say this employee was doing this task on this shift in this area and it's only good for the people that are covered that way. Once you've completed it, you simply say, okay, now it's objective data. And then you have the ability to use it more flexibly to try to estimate within reason what the exposures to other people might be. And in a more traditional construct, uh, excuse me, manufacturing environment, if the exposures tend to be fairly constant in a manufacturing environment, then you can actually map them out to some degree and come up with estimated ranges for employees mm -hmm. that you can use for everybody. If you've got one-off tasks or people that are moving from job to job, it's going to be a lot more challenging to try to ensure that you've got everybody covered and have realistic estimated values as to their exposures. Right. So I think the FAQs are helpful in that they clarify that employers can switch from the scheduled monitoring option to the performance option and that the data gathered from the scheduling monitor uh, scheduled monitoring option can actually be used to satisfy the requirements of the performance option so long as the data accurately characterizes uh, the employee exposure and also uh, employers can use old sampling data if the data or historical data if the data reflects workplace conditions closely resembling or with a higher exposure potential uh, than the employer's current operations. So it's basically going to take a diligent, intelligent, coordinated approach. We identify the types of exposures you have and come up with some sort of reliable system unless you're going to test everybody where you say, okay, here's what the exposures are here, here's what they are here, 
come up with some reasonable map, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. and then estimate exposures for people depending on where yeah. they're working. Otherwise, you end up testing everybody. Right, <laughs> right. Um, and also, we uh, uh, we encourage people to look at FAQ number eight, which provides uh, a helpful list on what information actually constitutes objective data in order to satisfy this requirement. If you want to demonstrate that you're not within the scope of the standard, you need to be able to do so with objective data. So uh, OSHA lists things like industry-wide surveys, data from equipment manufacturers, information from trade associations, uh, and other historical data. And so that list is worth uh, taking a look at. We already talked about the fact that when you take the exposure readings, there'll be a uh, sampling analysis error that comes along with the process. And therefore, um, when you get a number, as long as the number is not greater than 50 plus, mm -hmm. whatever that error is, you're within the pill. And the same thing I would think would apply to the action level. Um, we'd expect that to be the case too. So. Bottom line, there, there's some flexibility because OSHA recognized that the sampling analysis wasn't always going to generate the same number and there'd be some statistical errors. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think the last, the last FAQ we want to mention relevant to exposure assessments is that um, the, well, the standard does require you to list the employee's social security numbers and air monitoring records, uh, and that's part of the record keeping requirements. So OSHA clarifies in the FAQs that uh, they actually, they're, they're going to initiate or they, they either recently initiated a proposed rule to rescind uh, requirements to uh, actually record employee social security numbers. That's uh, in the standards improvement project that's right. proposal that's been sitting at for a while now. since August. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it should, who knows when it'll come out, but OSHA is trying to address this issue across all standards. And so OSHA clarified in the FAQs that uh, omitting employee social security numbers in your air monitoring records uh, it's it's just a it's going to be a de minimis violation only, uh, and in the future they will uh, be promulgating a rule that will um, uh, rescind such requirements. And a de minimis violation is one with no penalty, no Correct. sanction, and you just don't even have to think about it. Right. Um, so we're going to move on to regulated areas. So FAQ twenty five is interesting in that it provides some clarification of when an employer does not need to establish a regulated area. Uh, and so regulated areas are areas where employees' silica exposure exceeds or can reasonably be expected to exceed the PEL. So OSHA explains that um, there's, there's essentially a safe harbor uh, that they're providing. So if an employer has and adequately enforces work rules precluding employees from entering a particular area, then the employer does not need to treat the location like a regulated area. And so as long as they have these rules in place, then they don't even need to establish a regulated area. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we don't think that that's actually required. At least I don't think that's required. The standard says if the employee's not reasonably going to exceed the pill, 
it doesn't talk about the fact that you have to establish work rules to make sure that doesn't happen. And the burden would be on OSHA to establish that either the employee's exposure exceeds a bill or is reasonably likely to. But if, if somebody wants to go to all this trouble, um, establishing work rules means either setting up signs anyway or somehow designating areas as, as off-limits or restricted and basically almost end up with creating a restricted area in order to come in with that safe harbor. So I, I think that's a burden that I'm not sure many employers would want to take on. Um, and so, so moving on to methods of oh, one, one oh, just so we're sure. clear, the the way OSHA has interpreted this, there's there's two ways they've written regulated areas in the past. Sometimes they say if the airborne exposure levels above the pill, and sometimes they say where the employee's exposure exceeds the pill. And there's a difference. One doesn't matter whether the employee's there or not in theory. In this case, OSHA is saying you have to look and see whether the employee is actually realistically going to be exposed, not whether there's some exposure that's above the pill that nobody's going to be in, involved with or exposed right. to. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's important to clarify because that's different from some other standards. Um, and so go, go, moving on to methods of compliance, uh, the FAQs have a few clarifications about um, when when it, about what when employees have to implement feasible in engineering controls and work practices to reduce silica um, if those controls are not sufficient to reduce exposures uh, employers are nevertheless required to implement controls that reduce exposures to the lowest feasible level and so uh, the FAQs uh, provide some clarification um, about how to demonstrate that so so again, uh, if the use of engineering and work practice controls results in exposures at or below the PEL, then the employer doesn't need additional controls, even if they're feasible. But on the other hand, if the exposures are above the PEL, but the employer can demonstrate that it has implemented all feasible engineering and work practice controls, then the employer's in compliance with the standard. So the bottom line would be that if you're above the PEL, you have an obligation to implement feasible engineering and administrative controls, even if it doesn't take you below the pill, as long as it makes some significant improvement. The other thing to keep in mind, uh, this is not our view, but at least OSHA had estimated what the mortality risk was if you get down to the pill. And of course, those numbers are all well over one in a thousand, which means there's still, a, in theory, in OSHA's mind, a significant risk at these levels and even at the action level. So one of the issues that could come up is if an employee uh, doesn't question the studies OSHA relied on and accepts them and accepts these risks as being valid, you could very well get requests from a good number of employees to wear respiratory protection even though it's not required by the standard. You'll have to right. address that, qu that inquiry or those requests. And yeah. you might even get a physician to write a letter saying an employee needs respiratory protection because of these exposure levels mm -hmm. and those theoretical risks. Right, I think that's a great point. Um, so we wanted to include a couple of FAQs about written exposure control plans because as you recall, uh, one of the enforcement trends that we've been seeing are that employers are allegedly failing to comply with the written exposure control plan requirements of the standard. And so the FAQs clarify that the written uh, the written exposure control plan um, it it does not have to 
include all tasks that could involve any exposure to silica uh, because tasks that are not covered by the standard, like if uh, the employer has objective data demonstrating the exposure will remain below the action level under foreseeable conditions, that does not have to be included in the plan. Um, also, uh, the, the guidance helps clarify that employers can develop a single comprehensive plan for each worksite that includes all of the silica generating tasks that employees will perform on the worksite. So, so they don't need separate exposure control plans for different operations or processes or shifts at the okay. same worksite. I would say this is has an analogy to the lockout tagout. OSHA says, mm -hmm. yes, you can have a generic plan, but you need equipment-specific procedures. And I think this is going to end up going down the same route, where you can have a generic plan, but they'll want task-specific control measures to be set out. And then the issue is going to be, well, what's a task? And, right. and that's not mm -hmm. always going to be clear with an employee who's moving around from one thing to another and whether you're going to break those tasks down into subtasks, if you want to call it, or whether it's going to be treated as one. So there are a lot of open issues. There's no question about that. It, the standard says you don't have to document and review evaluation of the control plan, mm -hmm. and that's simply because they didn't want to go through the record-keeping approval at OMB and have to right. acknowledge that people were going to be spending more time with records review. But from our standpoint, if you've got an obligation to review a plan and evaluate it, it only makes sense to identify the person who actually did it and the date it was done and to document that. Right. Yeah. OSHA, OSHA does say in the BQs that um, while it's not required, retaining that information is helpful to verify compliance. And then the last FAQ we'll briefly cover, it has to do with housekeeping. So FAQ 37 addresses the, the, the requirement in the standard that, um, again, if you are subject to the standard, employers are prohibited from dry sweeping or dry brushing if it contributes to uh, exposures to silica unless wet sweeping, uh, HEPA filtered vacuuming, or other methods that minimize the likelihood of exposure are not feasible. So this FAQ, which is, I think, the lengthiest one out of all 64 of them, it helps flesh out and explain what uh, what types of or what are the scenarios of when wet sweeping or when uh, HEPA filtered vacuuming is not feasible. And a lot of those, the examples have to, they relate to uh, scenarios where uh, using that method would actually create a hazard, like, for example, using uh, water that would make an elevated surface slick and it would create a fall hazard. Or if um, using that wet method would affect the quality of work being done or the final product. Uh, and in terms of uh, examples of, uh, of, of methods that are not feasible uh, for HEPA filtered vacuuming, uh, they give the example of if there's if there's tight or obstructed spaces preventing accessibility so it won't work, or if there's just such a large volume of material that it can't be vacuumed. And so that FAQ is going to be particularly helpful for companies that are trying to uh, comply with the housekeeping requirements. And then they do point out that if you don't use a HEPA vacuum, you're responsible for looking at the discharge from a regular vacuum cleaner to see whether it's throwing particles back into the air. Sure, right. Right. So uh, we we just wanted to highlight a few of the FAQs for you. Like we said, there, there are 64 of them. And so uh, the first thing we think employers should do is review all 64 of them. Of course, if you're mm -hmm. if you're um, 
obviously if you are subject to the general industry standard, but also if you are uh, if you want to clarify whether or not you are subject to the standard. So I think it's helpful for anyone uh, to review these FAQs. One more minor thing. Shoveling is not sweeping, according to OSHA. So oh, right. you can do whatever you want to do with a shovel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, we also think, uh, again, because based on the enforcement data, it's important for employers to really understand if they are subject to the standard uh, or if certain requirements are triggered by the standard. And of course, if they believe they uh, are exempt from the standard, how they can demonstrate that. um, And so these FAQs can help uh, answer some of those compliance questions for employers. And uh, again, uh, as Larry and I talked about, uh, every facility in the U.S. may may have exposures due to maintenance or construction. And so it's important to know the exposure levels of silica in your facility, whether it's uh, construction-related or general industry-related. And the other thing is frequently it's going to be an outside contractor that's going to be generating them, and then there's going to have to be some coordination with them before mm-hmm. the work gets done to right. ensure that they're complying with the rule and providing adequate notice to the host employer. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think it's always, we mentioned this with the construction FAQs too, Uh, These are frequently asked questions, and so this is guidance from OSHA. This is not a a revision of the standard, or uh, this is not a regulation, and so this is is intended to be guidance for employers, but this is not um, a a final rule, or this this is not changing the regulation itself. So it's important to keep that in mind. Um, And then uh, just looking forward in terms of the development of OSHA guidance and OSHA uh, changes to the silica standard. Uh, On OSHA's regulatory agenda, uh, it plans to propose revisions to the construction industry standard or table one, uh, specifically table one of the standard. Uh, OSHA wants to look at, uh, they want stakeholder input on whether certain tasks or controls need to be added or changed to table one. And so again, um, this is not only important for the construction industry standard, but also if you are in general industry and uh, you have uh, certain tasks that are indistinguishable from tasks on table one, and if you wanna take advantage of table one, then this rulemaking would affect you as well. And so that's coming up with OSHA. And then also uh, we have yet to see what OSHA is going to do about medical removal for the silica standard. Um, so uh, with that, that's uh, that's what we have for today on the silica FAQs. We wanted to, uh, on an unrelated note, uh, give uh, the OSHA 3030 community a reminder about an important deadline coming up. Uh, covered establishments that are required to electronically submit information from calendar year 2018 OSHA Form 300A information pursuant to OSHA's record keeping rule. Uh, a submission of that information electronically is due uh, to OSHA by March 2nd, which is just in a few days. And you can do that on OSHA's ITA web portal. Uh, and for more information about the record keeping rule, we've presented at least five other OSHA 3030s uh, related to this topic. So you can go back and review them uh, here if you have any questions. So with that said, uh, you can catch more OSHA updates on uh, Monish's Twitter account, which is at Rathmonish. You can also listen to the podcast. uh, And and please make sure when you listen to our podcast that you like or rate the podcast. You can also find our OSHA team on LinkedIn, which includes Monish Rath, David Sarvati, Larry Halperin. 
John Gustafson and, and myself, uh, and also the firm's workplace safety and health page. Um, our next OSHA 3030 will be on March 20th at 1 p.m. Uh, when you get your 3030 invitation in your email, please forward it along to three others in the safety and health community if you think they would benefit from our program. We would greatly appreciate that. Um, and also for those of you who are impacted by TOSCA, REACH, or FIFRA, we also have sister 3030 programs going on uh, and the next program dates are provided on the screen up there. So we encourage you to participate in those as well. So with that said, thank you all for participating in this month's OSHA 3030. We'll see you next month and until then, stay safe.